What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, we consider how do you assess a conflict of interest risk, what deemed exports mean for higher education. Mike Volkoff takes a deep dive into beneficial ownership. We look at the top 10 enforcement developments from the past decade, courteous two lawyers at Morrison and Forrester. We ask, what steps can you take to refresh your whistleblower system by some lawyers from Wachtell Lipton? What does a modern bank heist look like? Jonathan Rausch explores in Dipping Through Geometries, and Francine McKenna discusses some good old school fraud schemes. How can you win the trust of a whistleblower back? Jonathan Marks tells us three more KPMG partners go down in the firm's test cheating scandal. We look at some great podcasts this past week on the Compliance Podcast Network and wish everyone a safe and happy Memorial Day weekend at the start of the summer in this episode of This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. I know you'll enjoy this episode between Tom and Jay. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitor's Jay Rosen for This Week in FCPA, episode 206 for the week ending May 22, 2020, the start of summer edition. The Memorial Day weekend traditionally signifies the start of summer. What does it mean this year? As Jay and I are self-distancing and maintaining healthy lifestyles, or at least safe lifestyles, during the uh, coronavirus health crisis, we are also back to consider some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, which caught our collective eye. Jay, what say you? I I need to start uh, stoking up the grill and putting some hickory chips on. So let's get to this FCPA ethics compliance stuff spot on. It's a deal. So, Jay, um, Jeff Kaplan uh, of the Conflict of Interest blog uh, and a a fairly often um, contributor to This Week in FCPA had a really interesting article entitled Assessing Conflict of Interest Risks. And... We um, discuss conflict of interest from time to time, but here he uh, he really gave some uh, uh, words around how do you assess that risk and and it was fair it was uh, I don't want to say straightforward but uh, relatively uh, easy way to to start is look at the uh, conflict of interest history in your organization have there been violations have there been near misses look at that of competitors to the extent you might know them make the same inquiry around customer suppliers or third parties when which you do do business with see if your conflict of interest interest standards are fully understood and appreciated within your organization from there, move to see if you have a gap, do a gap analysis or weaknesses in your internal controls. See if there are any uh, happenstances 
uh, within your industry or culture-related factors, and then efficacy of process control. So uh, I think this uh, is really a good thing to think about during um, this health crisis, uh, particularly as uh, many of us, I think all of us, I guess, are, are working from home and we don't have that sort of rigorous oversight that we would typically have uh, when if we were working uh, in the office. So uh, some pretty good uh, thoughts from uh, Jeff. And of course, we link to it in the uh, show notes. Um, what are deemed exports, Jay? Well, uh, we're going to talk to the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly, and uh, link to an article that he wrote on his Radical Compliance website called uh, Report Flags Higher Education Deemed Export Issues. Government auditors released a report Tuesday flagging several weaknesses in, quote, deemed export compliance at colleges and universities. Although the report also chided the Defense Department, FBI, and other security agencies for not doing enough to help higher ed understand its deemed export duties. The GAO, the Government Accountability Office, released a review of the export compliance programs at nine large universities and found that the schools struggled with risk assessments, training, export compliance manuals, and internal audits of their export controls. The GAO also reported that they interviewed other higher education compliance officers who confirmed that, yep, deemed export compliance is a tricky thing for universities to get right. In the report, the GAO faulted directors, or rather the Directorate of Defense Trade Count Controls, the DDTC, which enforces export control regulation under the State Department, for failing to offer sufficient guidance about risk assessments, which certainly helped to explain why compliance officers are struggling with this very task. Deemed export issues arise when foreign nationals work with highly sensitive technologies as part of their jobs and then return to their home countries either with the know-how inside their heads or research work stored on their laptops. Think of Chinese visiting scholars working on artificial intelligence or Iranian grad students studying virology, that sort of thing. For higher ed in particular, deemed export compliance can be a significant risk because federal law exempts fundamental research from the export control licenses. Matt believes that they need guidance and context. What struck him in the report was that regulators and university compliance officers are like, are struggling with how to communicate deemed export risk to their respective audiences. Um, yes, the DDTC should know what happens when you assume. That said, the DDTC and university compliance officers are both limping through the failures of good communication with other parties necessary for effective compliance and internal controls. Matt has two takeaways here. In terms of recommendations, the GAO report or urged the DDTC the Bureau of Industry and Security, and other relevant agencies to do a better job at providing useful guidance. University compliance officers said they were especially keen on tightly focused help such as FACs, FAQs rather, and best practices. And university compliance officers, meanwhile, can take the GAO findings about weaknesses in deemed export compliance programs and compare their own weaknesses to what the GAO found elsewhere. So uh, once again, Matt is on top of some uh, 
information that is vital to you all, and we link to the show notes. Next up, uh, Tom, Mike Volkoff has a four-part series on one of his favorite subjects, BOE, Beneficial Ownership. What says Mike? So Mike actually says a lot, Jay, and I thought I knew beneficial ownership sort of like the back of my hand, and it took me several readings through his four-part series to fully grasp how complicated an area this is and how little I actually knew. Uh, The risks are incredibly high. The United States is far behind uh, many other parts of the world in dealing with this. You have both corruption and sanctions risks. Uh, under UBOs, I had you know focused uh, most generally on the anti-corruption risk, but that's really only a part of it. You have obligations under OFAC. You have obligations under the FCPA. You've got to determine uh, not only the UBOs of those who do business with you, but those who do business for you. Uh, as I mentioned, there obviously are anti-corruption risks. And the OFAC sanctions risks uh, are beyond simply the um, the number of or the parties themselves. You have to look at geographic area. You've got to look at uh, revenue factors. You've got to come up with categories and strategies to uh, not only risk rank but manage those risks. You've got to have a protocol. You've got to have controls, and of course, you have to document, document, document. So. Um, uh, I would urge everyone to read this four-part series, and actually what I'd urge you to do is call Mike Volkoff and hire him to uh, help you with uh, this problem. It's a great uh, primer, and Mike is one of the most generous people uh, I think we both know in the compliance space in terms of uh, willing to share not only uh, his knowledge but uh, what he has. So check out these four parts. Uh, once again, we link to it in the show notes, and uh, give him a call if uh, you need some help in this area. Thanks, Tom. So uh, next up, we've got something coming to us from Corporate Compliance Insights, and it's a top 10 list. You don't usually get a top 10 list around Memorial Day, but this is very interesting. comes to us from Morrison and Forrester's James Kukios and Amanda Aikman, and they examine 10 ways in which the anti-corruption compliance landscape has dramatically changed since the 2010s, and they explain why they expect those trends to continue. First off, increased foreign bribery resources and enforcement in the United States. The beginning of that decade of 2010 saw U.S. enforcement agencies significantly increase the resources dedicated to fighting foreign bribery, resulting in dramatic increase in the FCPA enforcement. In 2010, a new chief of the U.S. Department of Justice Criminals Fraud Division consolidated a relatively small number of full and part-time FCPA prosecutors. Beginning with this consolidation, the number of full-time FCPA prosecutors increased more than tenfold over the next 10 years. Number two, increased foreign bribery enforcement around the globe. A common criticism heard at the beginning of the decade, both domestically and abroad, was that the U.S. was the world's only foreign bribery policing agency. But as the decade progressed, excuse me, enforcement of foreign bribery laws became a multinational effort with agencies from some 20 countries 
who have worked together to provide assistance on FCPA investigations. Number three, Operation Car Wash, the largest foreign bribery investigation of the de decade. Not only did it subsume uh, Petrobras, but it also involved Braschem and other Brazilian entities and went all the way around the world. Number four, enactment of the UK Bribery Act and the rise of the UK Serious Fraud Office. The UK started off the decades of the 2010s with a complex, outdated, much-criticized patchwork of anti-bribery laws. When they enacted the uh, UK Bribery Act in 2010, this became arguably the strictest foreign bribery law in the world with expansive territorial jurisdiction and a prohibition of both public and private bribery. Number five, the proliferation of deferred prosecution and agreements. In, 2010, in the 2010 assessment of the FCPA enforcement, the OECD Working Group described the DOJ's use of deferred prosecution agreements and non-prosecution agreements of two of several good advances that they made in policy. Following the DOJ's successful use of DPAs and NPAs, other countries followed suit, including Canada, France, Singapore, and the UK, and they adopted either DPA or DPA-like regimes during the 2010s. Number six, China, an anti-corruption anti-enforcement hotspot. Before 2004, there were no FCPA enforcement actions involving China, but in the 2010, China was the country most frequently named in FCPA enforcement actions in 21 DOJ actions and 49 SEC actions. Development of FCPA case law makes number seven, and as the FCPA enforcement ramped up in the 2010s, a common criticism was a lack of case law interpreting the Act's key elements. But as the DOJ and the SEC ramped up efforts to bring individual enforcement actions in the 2010, the decade saw a number of notable FCPA decisions, including Eskenazi and Bork. Number eight, publication of the FCPA Resource Guide. The DOJ and SEC jointly issued a landmark publication, a resource guide to the U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, in November of 2012. Perhaps most importantly, the guide also described the DOJ's and the SEC's view on components of an effective compliance program, grouping them into 10 separate categories referred to as the hallmark of an effective compliance program. Number nine finds the growth and sophistication of anti-corruption compliance programs and the effectiveness as a company's compliance program has long been a relevant factor in charging and sentencing decisions. Enforcement authorities increase transparency regarding their compliance expectations, such as the guide's hallmarks discussed and also recently the DOJ publication in 2019 of the second volume of evaluation of corporate compliant programs. Last but not least, number 10 is an increase in whistleblower activities. During the 2010, whistleblowers became an increasingly important part of the anti-corruption landscape. On the U.S. side, the establishment of the SEC Whistleblowers Program in 2010 transformed whistleblowing from an unsophisticated hodgepodge of tips to a more sophisticated process shaped by whistleblowers' bar eager to receive a portion of the $400 million awarded to individuals and actions in more than $2 billion in financial penalties. So it's a great article to look back, and it really kind of shows the birth of many of these antecedents that uh, the anti-corruption community takes for granted.
Jay, next up, uh, we have an article by some lawyers from Wachtell Lipton, uh, typically who don't write about compliance-related issues, but it is uh, remaining attuned to internal whistleblower reports. And it, it really was kind of a reminder of the importance of whistleblower reports, but they had uh, one um, uh, key recommendation, Jay, that I thought uh, we don't I hadn't really heard phrased in this way, and that is to refresh your existing hotline or reporting system. And um, this is a great time during uh, COVID-19 and coronavirus to uh, uh, have a very forthright statement from senior management encouraging, encouraging employees to take advantage of the company's internal reporting mechanisms, not only for compliance, but really workplace safety, misconduct, uh, a wide variety of, of issues. And then now's the time to do that. And then um, take a look at the resources you have dedicated to your hotline. So uh, a great recommendation and a great reminder that uh, simply because you have a hotline in place and you may think it's worked well, doesn't mean it's still working well, particularly in this new, um, the new normal of working from home. So refresh your uh, existing internal hotline or reporting system and, um, uh, take a look at the resources you have dedicated to uh, triaging and then working with it going forward. Great. Next up, we always have something very interesting from Jonathan Rush's Dipping Through the Geometries uh, blog post. And uh, today we look at VMware Issues, Modern Bank Heist 3.0, report featuring cyber threat data, data, data analysis and CISO survey data. Uh, on May 14th, the enterprise software firm VMware released its modern bank heist 3.0 report. The report combines threat data analysis by VMware's carbon black team with survey responses from 25 financial institutions, chief information security office officers, CISOs reflecting trends over the past 12 months. Key findings and responses in the report include the following threat data analysis, from the start of February to the end of J April 2020, attacks targeting the financial sector grew by 238%. 27% of all cyber attacks to date in 2020 have targeted either the healthcare sector or the financial sector. From survey responses, 80% of those surveyed financial institutions reported an increase in cyber attacks a 13% increase from last year, and 82% said that cyber criminals have become more sophisticated. 33% said they have encountered attacks leveraging island hopping, where an attack uh, on supply chains and partners are commandeered to target primary financial institutions, and 25% said that they were targeted by destructive attacks, those launched punitively to destroy data. To respond to these cyber attack methods, the report recommended five steps for financial institutions to respond to incidents. Number one, stand up a secondary line of secure communications to discuss the ongoing incident. Two, assume the adversary has multiple means of gaining access to the environment. Three, watch and wait. Rather than immediately starting to block malware activity and to shut off access, as the institution needs to determine potential avenues of reentry by attackers. Four, deploy agents if you must in monitor only mode. And five, deploy honey tokens. 
fake digital data objects planted among real data objects and used, used them in an attempt to direct data disuse, uh, misuse by insiders. Finally, the information security officers at financial institutions should distribute copies of this report to their teams and incorporate specific findings into the executive level briefings. Senior leadership and financial institutions need to understand the degree of sophistication that cyber attackers routinely display in their efforts to acquire or destroy vital data, and if they're to make sound judgments about the resources that their CISOs need on a continuing basis. Jay, next up, we have an article from Francine McKenna. Uh, She's a big friend of this podcast, and that was in her prior job, though, uh, as a reporter at MarketWatch. She's gone off on her own, and she's got her own site now called The Dig. It's behind a firewall, uh, so you have to pay for it, but I think you can uh, see the articles, and and I would really suggest everyone go ahead and and pay for this service because it's a great – First of all, be supporting uh, true journalism in the audit world, Francine, but also she's got some great stuff in there. And this article really, I think, emphasizes to me why the compliance practitioner needs to be up on audit um, and audit uh, requirements and findings. Because in this blog post that we cite to, she takes a look at old school fraud schemes. And this is one of the things that I was trained on when I went in the corporate world uh, from the legal perspective. And so it's always great to remember what some of the key ones are. And obviously, uh, improper rev rec is always a big, uh, whether it be round trip transaction, side agreements, a bait and switch, channel stuffing, my personal favorite, um, but also inventory schemes, uh, promotional schemes, off balance sheet entries, and just a wide variety of, of uh, schemes that corporations use. She de- defines each one of these and really gives you some examples that you can use because, Jay, I think many compliance practitioners either fail to understand or rather fail to appreciate or or forget that uh, corruption is a subset of fraud. So if there's fraud going on, there probably is corruption going on, and the same is true vice versa. If you've got people engaging in corruption, paying bribes to secure business, there's probably fraud going on where the money's being stolen from your company. So uh, take a look at the article. Uh, consider uh, uh, subscribing to The Dig. That's our site. And uh, we wish her well going forward. So um, we're going to revisit the topic of whistleblowing again. We spoke about it earlier in the NYU piece. And another good friend of our uh, podcast, Jonathan Marks, uh, takes a look at whistleblowing in his board and fraud blog. And it's entitled Whistleblowers, Tipsters Not Trusting the System, Here's How to Win Them Back. Anonymous hotlines and tip reporting structures are useless, of course, if information, if informants don't trust them. Employees won't blow the whistle if they fear reprisals, so their concern often don't enter case management systems, and fraud continues. Here's how to earn back their trust, take them seriously, and transform raw tips into valuable examinations. For 25 years, an anonymous hotline run out of the office of the State Inspector General of Virginia has helped expose wrongdoing in the state government. As of October 2017, The state fraud, waste, and abuse hotline had received more than 16,000 calls, and the top five allegations were 
leave abuse, state vehicle misuse, violating state hiring policies, misuse of state equipment, and five, noncompliance. According to the article, Michael Westfall, acting state inspector general, said it isn't always easy for whistleblowers to pick up the phone and call, but it's important to hold the powerful accountable. In 2017, Jonathan spoke at the 28th annual ACFE Global Fraud Conference in Tennessee. And one of the things he wanted to discuss about whistleblower tips is first, they found that the tips of fraud or misconduct don't always come through a hotline. Tips often come through other channels, such as through emails, faxes, or surveys, even on handwritten notes slipped under the doors. Attendees at this conference acknowledge that tips, unfortunately, might not make it into the case management system if the tipsters don't use the organization's hotline. So in terms of addressing hotline weaknesses, first of all, there needs to be unwavering internal audit procedures. Internal audit and compliance departments can be effective in evaluating allegations or organizations' hotline designs and effectiveness. Boards of directors need to ensure that their internal audit departments' involvement in whistleblowing processes don't undermine their ability to carry out prime assurance functions. You need to exercise professional skepticism. We exhibit professional skepticism in the fraud fighting process when we take nothing for granted, continuously question what we hear and see, and ethically assess all documents and statements. Next, educate others on how to make and receive tips. How an organization reacts or triages a tipster's message can make or break how the information goes. Tips that use the word fraud are treated much more seriously than words or phrases like misunderstanding or possible error. Set yourself up for success. When a tip comes in, use a process that's established to effectively capture and triage, investigate, and report. Understand the business environment and the network of third-party relationships, fraud schemes that could potentially occur, possible concealment strategies, conversion tactics, individuals or gatekeepers, establish internal controls to present, and then a list of warning signs. So as always, uh, Jonathan says that you must trust the process. Fear of reprisal and often does prevent employees and others from reporting genuine concerns. This creates a challenge for a board, audit committee, senior leadership, and internal audit and others. Trusting the process means that whistleblowers believe there's a strong tone and conduct from the top of their organizations that will objectively evaluate concerns and no matter what, will not retaliate. Retaliation in most cases mutes the employee's voice. So again, Jonathan provides some real cogent and helpful information for being on the front line of investigations. Tom, we're at the part of today's podcast where we're going to talk about some of the different podcasts you had on the Compliance Podcast Network this week. What were some of the things people were able to listen to? Yeah, we had another great week on uh, the Compliance Podcast Network uh, Thursday. Uh, everything we had another Everything Compliance episode post, and uh, it was great fun. On Friday, uh, creativity and compliance. We had perhaps the the most fun episode I've ever uh, done with Ronnie, where we had uh, Ricardo Pelafon. Uh, from Broadcat and the three of us just uh, <laughs> zinged back and forth. It was it was way too much fun. 
The biggest, uh, uh, most popular podcast of the week, though, was Ellen Hunt's episode three or part three in her four-part series on the compliance life. As you know, Jay, each month I'm featuring one CCO and their journey into the CCO chair and beyond. Ellen's a CCO at AARP, uh, which which I'm a proud card-carrying member. Um, and this in this episode, uh, she talks about. What happens when you finally sit in that CCO chair? Uh, it was hugely popular uh, this week. On my Compliance and Coronavirus podcast, I had John Shigarian come uh, talk about um, data as the new oil and what you need to do around um the inflection point for data and your compliance program in the era of COVID-19. Matt Whitaker, Matthew Whitaker is one of the founders of Ascent Compliance. It's a supply chain uh, focused compliance company, largely technology, uh, some services. And uh, we took a look at supply chain risks in the era of coronavirus, and they have a really cool tool on their site that I link to, which allows you to assess your supply chain risks uh, around coronavirus. And then the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly, um, he and I discussed the attestation requirement that the Commonwealth of Massachusetts has put on businesses for reopening in phase one of the state's opening. Over on the uh, uh, 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program, we took a look at charitable donation enforcement actions, opinion release guidance on charitable donations. On Wednesday, I uh, posited what you needed in policies and procedures around charitable donations. On Thursday, I took a look at the uh, rarely talked about topic in compliance, or at least FCPA compliance, which is political contributions. And then on Friday, I ended with uh, a, a discussion about the problem with facilitation payments that's going to lead to next week where I give policies and procedures around facilitation payments. 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program has its own iTunes channel, as do the other podcasts I mentioned. So check them out on uh, iTunes, Jay. And uh, let's give one more plug for the uh, Everything Compliance Podcast, which dropped on Thursday this week. And we heard uh, from a roundtable of experts, and many of them had contributed articles today. So join us with Mike Volkov, Matt Kelly, Jonathan Armstrong, Jonathan Marks, myself, and the whole, the straw that stirs to drink is Mr. Tom Fox. So, uh, Tom, anything else, that, any thoughts on the Memorial Day or uh, what you'll be doing over the long weekend? So uh, we're going to be self-isolating we uh, have not figured out our movie selections uh, for this weekend. We've been trying to uh, do two things. One, look at movies that have uh, a series or a theme arc. Um, so obviously the Marvel Cinematic Universe has been a big one. Uh, we've been re-exploring those. Uh, we did the Jason Bourne movies. We did the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies. I have to say they're much better than the uh, current MCU version uh, because they focus on Spider-Man and not the other characters from the MCU. We did uh, the um, James Bond. We did the first four James Bond with uh, Sean Connery, and we did the last four with Daniel Craig. It uh, turned out there was a fairly interesting arc going on there. So uh, I think we're going to do... 
uh, The Dark Knight, Batman's uh, really dark series for Christian Bale. And uh, we're going to come up with uh, some other things to, uh, to consider. What about uh, the uh, Clan Rosen? Uh, we are still burning off some series television that we um, taped over the last season. So uh, I don't think anything that would be of interest, you know, something that the uh, the 12 year olds seem to like probably would not be for the taste of our audience. Uh, we are also thinking about uh, potentially trying uh, Scoob, which is, uh, I guess, a uh, a 3D animated version of uh, Scooby-Doo that Warner Brothers uh, decided to drop and go directly uh, on video. And then I'm also looking forward to a movie um, with Pete Davidson, who's a comic on Saturday Night Live. And this is something that Judd Apatow has directed, and I believe it's called something like The King of Staten Island, but it's based on his real-life experiences uh, Pete's dad unfortunately perished in the 9-11 tragedy. He was last seen running into a, a burning building at the Marriott at the world um, where the World Trade Center was and was never seen from again. And this uh, kind of autobiographically traces his dealings with grief and how he became a comic on Saturday Night Live. So maybe uh, not the most uplifting, uplifting thing, but I think it's uh, appropriate at this time of the year with Memorial Day. That is coming from Universal and, again, is going straight to VOD. So in front of our eyes, we are seeing uh, the distribution model just changing on a weekly basis. So uh, good for some players, not so good for other players if you're in the uh, theater business. So uh, that's uh, our entertainment perspective. Uh, any, anything else to say, Tom? Jay, I have a bit of breaking news for you. Yes. Uh, we are putting a uh, SpeakPipe app on uh, the Compliance Podcast Network. What the SpeakPipe app does is allows you to leave a video message, excuse me, an audio message. So if you are interested in a topic, if you are interested in Jay and I exploring something, uh, leave us a message. This week, uh, we're going to focus, Jay, on our listeners in England. We have a, a very big following there. Uh, so if you're from England, we'd love to hear from you. The SpeakPipe app will be up uh, next week. So uh, leave us a message, message and tell us what you're thinking. Sounds uh, like we are totally on the cutting edge of uh, customer and listener wish fulfillment. So let's, let's see what comes in from the other side of the Atlantic. So on behalf of Tom Fox, the voice of compliance and the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 206, for the week ending May 22nd, the start of the summer edition. Uh, As always, we wish that you are safe and that you are healthy. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. As I mentioned in the uh, podcast, we put a SpeakPipe app on the Compliance Podcast Network. So if there is a topic you would like to suggest we cover or a guest, you might suggest that uh, come on the network or come on one of the podcasts. Or if you're from England, we'd love to hear from you. We have a lot of uh, listeners in England. 
This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. I hope you will plan to join Jay and I again next Friday when we talk about some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories for the week of Memorial Day. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.